Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of y'all's beautiful faces. Um, I want to start off this morning by, uh, let's see if I can get this thing to open first. Just uh, talked about a bit of a, a flashback that I had yesterday. I don't know about the rest of you, but because of the pandemic and things slowing down, uh, life has changed for all of us in some ways. But one of the ways that it's changed for me is uh, just getting a little bit more peace, a little bit more rest, a little bit less um, crazy roadrunner style living. But yesterday was a little bit of a flashback to some of that for me. Uh, I don't know about you, but how many of you have, have found yourself trying to do too much sometimes? Amen. And, uh, and also, we'll, we'll probably see it sometimes in our friends and our family, sometimes online. You'll be like, oh, she's trying to do too much. He's trying to do too much. I had one of those days yesterday where I woke up motivated. I said, you know what? I'm going to go for a bike ride. I had a friend call me on, on, uh, on Friday and say, hey, let's go for a ride. I said, all right, let's do it. So normally I ride maybe 15, 20 miles. We went for 50 miles on Saturday. I was excited about it till about the halfway point. And then if, if it wasn't for just trying to save face, I would have called Mary for sure and said, come pick me up. That was the beginning sign that I was going to have one of those days of trying to do too much. Then I got home and I had a meeting with some of uh, the, the men that I disciple. And we usually meet for about an hour. And it was good. We were excited to be with each other and talking. We, we weren't able to connect last week. We were on the phone for three hours on a Zoom call. Doing too much. It was good, but we were doing too much. Um, literally, they, they didn't know this, but I had like my phone on speakerphone for like the last five minutes. We were about to pray. And I'm like, I, I turned off the camera of the Zoom. I'm like, dude, I got to get in the shower, guys. My, my family is like waiting for me in the car. So we prayed and I got it on mute and in the shower, just doing too much. So then I, I run downstairs, jump in the car, run the kids. Nate's got uh, basketball games. We literally, his game is at 150. At 149, I don't even stop the car. I just open the van door, push him out. I said, you better have your shoes on. He runs onto the court, starts playing. He plays two games. We run home after the second game, get showered, and we go to celebrate my niece's 16th birthday party. And it was awesome, amen. But again, just doing too much. We didn't, we didn't even, I don't know if we had a chance to breathe or eat or anything, get down there, celebrate, have a good time, get home, throw the kids in bed, start reviewing again the message for, for this morning. And uh, I just felt the Lord reminding me, like, you used to live your whole life like that. Like all the time before this pandemic hit, just trying to do too much. Just uh, not resting, not sleeping, not, not ever saying no and trying to get uh, the most out of every day, out of every moment. So I'd like to think that, that I've matured, I've slowed down, I've started to consider some of those things. I encourage you guys to consider those things, uh, not going back to some of those, those bad habits, um, taking some of the things that we've learned in this season of slowing down and not letting ourselves uh, get drawn back into that. So however, it was a good day. I might fall off of the stage because 50 miles, I was standing in the back, I was like, is that the worship Lord or is it... <laughs> at the miles <laughs> feeling weak in the knees SWV um, so so anyhow the point for this morning the moral to that story is you guys know I love the scriptures I love to share with you guys I love when we get to get into the word together and what I decided to do is I, I lopped off a, th a third 
of what I was going to share with you guys this morning in hopes of not doing too much. Amen? Amen. We'll see if we can change this, shift this thing, and turn it around. But I think it's going to be good. The two-thirds that we are going to cover, uh, I think, is, is going to be good for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. So what a series it's been so far. We've been in um, this study, this series through the book of Philippians, and hopefully it's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing for me to study and to share with you guys. Uh, Gary's ministered uh, last week. It wasn't part of our series, but I think it fit in really well with uh, Donnie Griggs from One Harbor in North Carolina came and ministered to us, and he talked about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And what we've been talking about in our, our series and in the fall here has just been community unity, all right? The things of God, the people of God. So it's been really good. What I decided to do this morning, um, not only because of last week with having Donnie here, but I want to touch on what we've, what we've covered so far, a quick recap, but I'm not going to get into all of the information like I usually like to do. I'm just going to hit the points that we actually covered through these first five weeks of our series. And here's the challenge. When I get to a point that you remember, that you like, that really ministered to you, that helped you, that, that uh, struck something within you, I need you to say amen, I need you to shout, and if it's quiet, that means that you want me to go further into the points <laughs> and recap them more thoroughly. Amen. So I'm going to give you practice right now on the first one, okay? So in week number one, point number one was the church plant. Oh, okay. All right, so that was ministering to you. You remember it. I don't have to recap. All right, you guys get it. So here we go. Week number one was the church plant, number one. Number two was uh, the church plant was spirit-led from the beginning. Paul, led by the spirit. Number three was praying women were at the foundation of this move of God. Lydia, I hear you ladies. Number four was Lydia believed God, but it was actually Paul that came with the word of God. That's how she actually got saved. She was already believing in God himself. But it was the word where she got saved, she got baptized. Amen. Number five, there was a culture clash, right? There was prayer continued, in, uh, but the opposition increased. There's a culture clash between what was going on in Philippi and what Paul was bringing in to Philippi. Number six in week number one was worship. If you remember, they were in the, amen, they were in the, uh, the cell. They had been arrested, but they started worshiping, and the, the, the shackles fall off, and the doors open up. So good. See, I'm starting to starting to go into it you didn't shout enough on that one it's your fault uh number seven was there were seeking sinners and regular sinners who were saved right lydia and her friends were seeking god the jailer was not seeking god but they all got saved they were all sinners who needed a savior and number eight the last one was just community and fellowship when paul got released they went back to the house you had the jailer you had lydia you had all these people in community it was a good start to our to our series week number two we talked about discipleship. Okay, okay. We talked about unity and continuity, right? We can all be together, but that continuity is about us all moving together, right? In the same direction, with the same heart, with the same mind. Number three was love, knowledge, and discernment in week number two, right? That's how we're identified as the church. Week number three, we're almost there. We only have five weeks. So week number three, we talked about salvation and suffering, right? How these things are connected. We also talked about point number two was inside of us or in spite of us. God is going to move in you or God is going to move in spite of you. Paul was talking about how there are people who are preaching who don't really love God, don't really know God, and they're doing it for themselves. But Paul says, let them preach. Amen. The name of God is being glorified. God will work it out. He'll save those that are hearing the word and he'll condemn those who are preaching it outside of faith. Right. Mm, so good. 
Uh, we also talked about shame. Paul said, I know my situation looks bad, but I know it's going to turn around because God promised me that I would not be ashamed. If it looks like shame right now, if it feels like shame right now, that means the story is not over. Number four was to be here or not to be here. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can stay here with you guys and minister and help and love you and it's going to be good for you. Or I can just die, let him, let him kill me and I can go be with God in heaven. Week number four, Gary preached. He talked about consistency. He talked about courage. He talked about unity. He talked about consistency, <laughs> courage, and unity. Amen. And he talked about not only just uh, uh, unity, but community through humility, right? That it's our humbleness, right, that causes that community to really gel and come together. And then our last week, uh, week number five we, five, we talked about the mind of Christ, right? That mind that's in Christ needs to be in us. And how do we get that, right? Amen. Point number two was the incarnation. This idea that God would come out of heaven, be birthed through a woman, through a virgin, with no father, right? Only his father in heaven, that he would be able to come and to save us of our sins, right? Amen. That only the one that originally created us could recreate us and heal us and forgive us. What an amazing thing, the incarnation. And then that only God could save. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And then Paul said, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That was number four. Be saved. All that stuff about only God and about the incarnation is so that you would actually be saved. Work it out for yourself. Do you believe in God? Do you believe he's the only one? Do you believe that he had to come and be born and die on the cross for you? If so, then work it out. Get saved and serve the Lord. And our last one, a consistent one, was unity and community. Right? We have to be together. It doesn't work without other people. One of the things that um, pastors always would say when nobody was listening is church would be amazing if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> I'm letting you in on something. They say stuff like that, like, man, church would be great if it wasn't for the people. But then we got that when the pandemic hit. You get church with no people. You talk into a camera, they get to listen. You can imagine that they all loved it so much that 100 people got saved as they watched. And you can go on about your life. But it turns out that pastors don't really want that. We want the ugliness. We want the drama. We want the wrestling and the mud and the fight. And we also want the glory and the joy and the testimonies and the tears and the salvations. It just so happens that we actually have to be together. We need to be together. It doesn't work in isolation, right? God didn't, didn't uh, need people. He wanted people. That's why he created us, that he could love us and, and uh, just pour out his love upon us. So... If you can't tell, this morning I'm a little bit excited, and what I'm excited about is the church, is the body of believers. If you look at our week this last week with, thank you, with our Life Groups meeting on Wednesday night, how many of you guys had a good time at Life Group? Woo! Amen. So I heard nothing but good testimonies. Um, on Friday night, our youth got together, and one of the few times lately that I've been able to come and just kind of witness, I wanted to watch and see, check in on our youth leaders, check in on the kids. We had a really good group here. Uh, Gary and RJ ministered to the youth. They seemed like they were actually listening and engaging. Amen. And uh, at the end of that, they had their first worship practice for the youth. The youth want to start a worship team, right? So... On the way here, I was thinking to myself, man, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> I love these kids, but I don't know that they know what they're doing or how to do it. You guys would be shocked at how good they sounded. 
watching, watching them play the drums and the keyboard and the vocalist and the guitar and the bass and watching our adult worship team who on a Friday night came in for all of those areas and ministered to our young people was really, really special. Amen. So all that to say that the church is living out the way uh, the Bible teaches us to live our lives, to live it in community, to live it ministering to one another. That last week, uh, we gathered on Sunday, right? Then we, we came back and we met house to house, breaking bread, house to house, as the scriptures tell us to do, right? And then it, the Bible tells us that we need to raise up the younger generation and teach them how to serve the Lord, teach them how to worship God. In one week, you got to see all of that in this particular church. I'm excited about these things because as I look at our series through Philippians, I've been asking myself, yeah, it's, it's community, it's unity, and we're, are we doing enough? Are we relevant to what it is that we feel like God is saying to us? Because when I look at what we've studied so far in Philippians, there's just a lot of teaching, and there's a lot of like uh, kingdom stuff and, and Bible stuff and, and, and doctrine and all this kind of stuff. But I, feel, I really feel the Lord telling me that uh, the more we understand the kingdom, the more we understand the church, that community and unity is the fruit that comes from that understanding, right? We don't have to have to preach a message on how to be a good friend or how to be a good spouse, right? If you understand how God has designed the kingdom, you'll be a good spouse. <laughs> you'll be a good friend. You'll see the fruit of those things. So um, again, just opening our eyes to see what God has done in the last week, I think will help us understand what God wants to do through this series and through this study through Philippians. In Matthew 4, 23, it says that Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, say kingdom, kingdom. and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This is the story. When you read through the gospels, it says that when Jesus came, he got to a certain age that he was baptized. Then he was tempted by the enemy, right? Then he goes out and he calls his disciples. And after he calls his disciples, he starts preaching the kingdom and healing people. I like Jesus' plan. I like his preaching plan and I like his ministry plan, right? Make disciples, preach the kingdom, heal those who are sick and broken, right? And everything else will fall into place. So I'm going to pray and we're going to get into Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we'll be at verse 19. We finished off verse 18 last time. So Lord, we thank you for your plans and your purposes. We thank you for this series. We thank you for being able to see the things that we read in your word actually alive in our lives here and now, Lord, as we go throughout our week. Not only when we gather here in the church, in the temple, Lord, but as your word said, from house to house, Lord. And we see it generationally from the adults, Lord, and even to the, to the grandparents and the older generation, down to the youngest, Lord. Not only our youth, but even in our children's church, and our nursery, Lord God. We see your hand upon people, and we're so grateful for that, Lord. I ask that you would help us to remember the things that you've already taught us, not only through this series, but just when we've been walking with you, Lord. You said that you would send your spirit, not so that we would always feel better, but you said that you would send your spirit to remind us of the things that you've already taught us and to bring us into new knowledge, into more knowledge and fullness of knowledge, Lord. So we're just asking you to do what you said you would do, Lord. We trust you. We expect you to move. We expect you to change our hearts. We expect you to change our minds, Lord God. Help us in this area of community and unity, Lord God. Help us to seek you, to seek your kingdom first and foremost, Lord God. 
Open our hearts and our minds this morning that we would be changed forever, Lord. Not just for a moment or for a day or for a season, but forever, Lord. Have your way over your sons and over your daughters here in this place. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, like I said, open to Philippians chapter 2. We're at verse 19. Uh, good news. I don't know how many points I read through in, in recap. Probably like 30 of them. Today, you only got two. Say two. two. All right. So you better remember them and be changed. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Amen. So Paul wants to talk a little bit more about Timothy, and he's going to send him uh, to the church in Philippi. Paul also saying, like, I'm hoping that I get to come. If you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's, again, I don't think he's doing too much, but he's always on the move. He's telling people, I want to come and I'm hoping to go there. And, and on my way to this city, I'm going to try to stop by your city. He's loved and he's beloved by so many. And he loves them so much that he wants to be with them. He wants to be in communication with them. But there's something about this connectivity where he says, even if I can't physically be there, sometimes he say, I'm with you in spirit. And other times he says, whoever I'm sending, it's as if I'm there with you. How many of you, got to stay on my notes here, but I just want to ask you. How many of you have somebody that you trust so much that you are so like-minded, that you are so connected that if they go somewhere, it's as if you've gone? That if they speak to somebody, you know that they would say the exact same thing that you would say, that they would love the exact same way that you would love? It seems common when he talks about it so much, but if we really ask ourselves, it's not very common. We don't really see that a lot in our own lives. Let's maybe talk about why. You probably guessed it already, but yes, we're going to talk about discipleship again. It ain't my fault. Number one, discipleship. The Bible, amen. That's about right. One out of a hundred is excited about discipleship. But the Bible just won't let us escape it. Why? Because it's a significant part of how the kingdom of God operates, how it grows, and how it advances. We don't, might not want to talk about it. We might not want to enter into it. But what do we even say right now about Jesus? The first thing he did was go get disciples. Go make disciples. He says, I'm going to change the whole world. And it's almost as if coming out of heaven, being raised as a baby into a man was not enough. He still had to get disciples to change the world. And if Jesus had to do it, we should not expect any less from ourselves. And if that's how Jesus grew men and women of God, then we should not expect to be grown in any other way. So let's first look at what Paul specifically says to the Philippians about sending Timothy to them, right? Um, Matthew 10, 41 says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward, right? So the idea is if a prophet sends somebody and says, hey, this is a prophet, this is somebody I'm sending to you, you should receive them as if you were receiving me, and you'll be rewarded as if you were receiving me. 
It's kind of like when, when uh, we have Donnie come in and preach last week, right? It's not some random person who came into the church. And it's not somebody that we didn't know who, who brought them into the church. Your pastor brought them into the church. We know this man. We have a relationship with this man. We expect this man to be well-received. When you're sitting out there listening, the thought that should be going through your head, hopefully, and through your mind and through your heart, right, is that this person wouldn't have been brought in unless there's a good reason for it. And we should listen that way. You know what it's like sometimes where, like, instead of listening that way, you're judging the whole time? I don't know if I'm going to like him. He's got a really big beard. He's from North Carolina. We're from California. Like, it's not that judging. It's like, oh, this is a brother. This is a family member. This is a friend. When I was talking to some of the men this week, uh, one of them was mentioning that. Like, they looked at him, and he was big, and he was kind of scruffy, and they're like, they expected him to be, like, kind of rough and mean and scary, and they're like, but we could see the love of God in him. We could feel it coming off of him. Why? Because you received the man of God that was sent from a man of God, and then you get the blessing of a man of God. Isn't it funny how the scriptures actually work? So that's what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. Earlier we talked about um, how Timothy uh, had just become a disciple of Paul when they, when they went in to plant this church. And again, this is 10 years later, and Timothy's about to come back. We don't know if for the first time or multiple times throughout the years, but they know his character. They've heard about what he's been doing with Paul, right? And he's sending them back, and he says, you guys, make sure you receive him as if I was walking through the door as if I was walking into the church. Again, simple to understand, but I think more difficult to do. More difficult to do. So what does Paul say about him? Verse 19, he says, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. So Paul's saying, I'm sending Timothy because I want to know how you're actually doing. I want to know what your state is. He's going to go. He's going to minister. He's going to listen. He's going to be with you guys. And then he's going to come back to me and he's going to tell me exactly how you're doing. I want to know how my family in Philippi is doing. Listen to what he says. I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. The only one who will love you like I love you is Timothy, he says. How powerful. Timothy's going to come back. Paul's expecting Timothy to come back and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Hey, man, they look good, but something's not right in that church. Hey, Paul, you know, I remember you telling me about Lydia and her family, but they seem to be drifting. Or, hey, Paul, they're growing. There's more people being raised up, and the discipleship process is going wonderfully and powerfully. The young people are engaging in the church and in the worship. Like, Timothy, he's saying, Timothy's the only one who's like-minded. He's the only one that's really going to care. He's not just going to go on a little short-term mission trip, get encouraged, and then go back to living his life the way that he was living it before. When I send Timothy, it's just as if I was there. He's going to care for you like I care for you. Not only should you receive him that way, right? But I expect him to love you the way that I love you. It's a big deal. Recently in the, in the church, um, how do I say this? Um, a group of people, right, that I would say they go to church. There's unity, but not continuity, right? We all know what that's like. Like, hey, we don't dislike you, but there's nothing special about the relationship, right? But something happened. One of the young people, one of the kids of one of the families, uh, started to get kind of loved on and encouraged and, and blessed by one of the other families. And because of that, the parents of that young person were like, 
man, the way that you guys are loving on my child makes me love you more. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to anybody? They could recognize it, that mutual love for, for somebody that belongs to me. So imagine if it's Nate. It's like, this is my kid and I love my child, right? But when I see other people loving my child and protecting my child and encouraging my child and thinking about my child when they don't have to, it's like, oh God, how can I love them better? What, am, what, what, is, what is available to me in this relationship because this is special? And we're watching things like that happen in our church. That's what Paul is describing with Timothy here. He's like, expect him to come and love you like I love you, which is rare. But enter into it, receive it, engage in it, be open to it, and watch how your life has changed, and Timothy's life has changed, and the children's lives are changed. When I hear testimonies like that in the church, I just get so excited because I think about what's possible. To not go to a church where you just get along with people, where you just high and by, give them a wave, nothing special, but hey, it's, you know, we go to the same church. No, it could be more than that. Paul says, I only have one who's like-minded, though. So look at the percentages there. Paul's been ministering all over, planning churches, discipling. He's an apostle. He's reaching all kinds of people. He says, I got one guy I could send you. (laughs) So, okay, Jesus only had 12. If Jesus only had 12 and and one of him turned out to be Judas, then Paul's doing pretty good with one. I'll take one. (laughs) And why does he say this? This is something you probably need to take a note of. Verse 21 says, why do I only have one that I could send you, even though he's amazing? For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, look, There's a lot of people who are getting saved, a lot of people who who have come into faith. They know who Jesus is and they're following Jesus now. But at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, they're going to seek their own, not the things of Christ. Timothy is the only one I could send you that is fully abandoned, connected with me. We're on the same exact page, the same exact heart, right? And he's going to seek the things of Christ more than the things of himself. This is not to point the finger because... At times, all of us are going to fall victim to this. But let's, let's be honest, it's kind of a sliding scale. There are some of us who, from time to time, we just get selfish and do what's best for us. We're human. And then there are others who all the time are selfish and do what's best for them. <laughs> Jesus is the only one that can be fully perfect. However, we should be sliding that way in the scale. We should have more Timothys where people could say about you, they're going to do the things of God, what's best for the kingdom of God, what Christ would have them to do before they're going to do what's best for them. Paul's writing this to the church in Philippi, and he's making some pretty clear statements that matter to the church in Brea, that matter to every other church. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. How do we shift that? I'm asking because I don't really know. (laughs) I do know it's by the Spirit of God. It's by the Word of God. It's by the community of God. It's by being aware of some of those things that I told you are happening around you and amongst you and wanting more of it, valuing that more than anything else. What else does he say about him? Verse 22, Paul says about Timothy, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Wow. You know his character. You've watched him. 
You've heard about him. You've heard the stories and the testimonies, whether you've seen from afar or you've been witness personally to Timothy's life and to what God is doing in his life. But here's the part that I think is so great. He says that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Number one, it's about serving in the gospel. It ain't about anything else but the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Timothy served with me. But how did he serve? He served as a son. Why are we so afraid of sonship and daughtership? Think about that this morning. Why are we so afraid of sonship and daughtership? Why are we so intent on not saying, that is my spiritual father in the faith? That is my spiritual mother in the faith, and I want to celebrate that. Is it crazy to anybody else that, that that's actually like terrifying to us, or um, we look at that as weakness for some reason? I had some thoughts on maybe why some of that might be. Not for everybody, but many of us come from broken families, and we come from backgrounds of abandonment. So when we think about fatherhood and we think about motherhood, it ain't great thoughts. <laughs> right? We come from fatherless homes, motherless homes. We, I, my testimony is, is, I think I was maybe I got to about 12, where my family was everything. My dad was everything to me. He was like my hero. He was my coach. He was like, you know, I was that kid that wanted, like, like Niall is with me, just want to sit up under your, your dad all the time. My parents, like, I love to watch them love each other and to hold hands and to kiss each other. I, I, see, I see myself doing that with Mary in our house because I still have remembers of being, memories of being seven, eight, nine, you know what I'm saying, and seeing that in my home and the impact that it still has on me as a grown man. And I want to model that to my kids, right? Mary doesn't like public displays of affection, but I don't care. I'll be kissing on her, holding her hand. <laughs> Kids walk in, I'll be dancing in the kitchen because it's going to impact them. But I remember, in, it seemed like a day when everything fell apart for us. Separation, divorce, lost the house, lost everything, right? So when you grow up and, and you come into the kingdom and it's like, what? Sonship, daughtership, humility, like, like uh, discipleship. No, I don't know nothing about that. All I know is everybody was supposed to protect abandon. Everybody who was supposed to love, stop loving. Everybody who was supposed to guide, stop guiding. So I'd rather just, you know what we end up doing is, we learned at a young age, if you don't take care of yourself, ain't nobody going to take care of you. If you don't get it done on your own ability, nobody's going to come behind you and say, let me just give you the things that you don't have. So whatever perverted um, versions of ourselves that we became, that kind of character that we lived with, that you can say whatever you want to say, but it got us to wherever we are now, we bring that into the church. And we say, no, 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 I know the Bible talks about that discipleship, sonship, daughtership, all that kind of stuff. But no, I don't, I don't really roll like that. I'm going to just go as far as I can go on my own. Even those of us who have seen restoration and reconciliation within our relationship with our parents or maybe their relationships with each other, we still have that brokenness, right? We still have that character that we bring into our relationships with God. And we don't read the scriptures for what they say. We read it through the lens of that brokenness. 
We either continue to act in the church as if we don't have a living father, right? So we can continue to try to take care of ourselves or we imagine our father in heaven to be the mother or father that we imagined in our own lives. Does that make sense? You act fatherless, you act motherless, or you say, this is who God is. The father that I wanted my father to be. The mother that I wanted my mother to be. And that's not healthy either because this is who our father in heaven is. He'll tell you who he is, how he's going to love and how he's going to discipline, how he's going to shape you and how he's going to grow you. He'll declare to us who he actually is. But how does he do that? He, he tells us that we've been adopted, like we have to become sons, we have to become daughters. And he shows us through Jesus that his process is through discipleship, through people ministering into our lives. It ain't easy. Somebody say amen. amen. I think this is part of the reason why discipleship is so hard for us when it comes to letting a man or a woman of God be a spiritual mother or father to us, right? We don't know how to operate under the love and covering and sometimes difficult direction of these men and women. Right? I, if you're taking notes, I said love, covering, and sometimes difficult direction. Just like Jesus, everything has to start and be rooted in love. Just like Jesus, we, if you're going to be discipled, you need to understand covering. The Bible says that um, the, head of, the head of man is God um, and that the head of woman is man. The idea is covering, right? It's not about just authority in somebody's life. What it's saying is you, as a man, you have this covering over you that is God. And you should be so excited about that. Because if you were outside of that covering when you weren't saved, we know what kind of hell of a life that is to have no covering of God. You want to come underneath that even if it gets hard sometimes. And as a woman, you want to come underneath the covering of a man even if it gets hard sometimes because it's a blessing. Discipleship. We don't know how to operate under that love, under that covering, or underneath that sometimes difficult teaching and direction. It ain't always going to be easy. Some of us imagined a father that gave us everything we wanted or a mother that always said, yes, God ain't that. Your discipler ain't going to be that. They're going to love you. They're going to cover you, but it ain't going to be yes all the time. And it ain't going to be great job all the time. Amen. Preach. <laughs> So there's this movie, it's an old movie, uh, maybe some of you probably watched it. You guys remember the movie Goodwill Hunting? Anybody? If you haven't watched it, I was thinking about it. I, those who are discipled or want to be discipled, watch that movie. There's some bad parts, it's an adult movie. Don't, don't say, my pastor said this is a great Christian movie. Discipleship-wise, there's some lessons to learn, though. There's this scene, it's Robin Williams and Matt Damon. This is how they actually got famous, um, Matt Damon at least. Um, so there's, there's this scene, they, they're in a discipleship relationship. Right? Robin Williams and, and Matt Damon. Matt Damon comes from exactly what we're talking about this morning, a broken home, abused, foster care, and then abused by foster parents. Imagine that. You've been abandoned by your own parents, and then you get abused by foster parents. That's a reality. It ain't just a movie that happens a lot of times, right? So anyway, Matt Damon is in this relationship. They keep trying to send him to therapists, but he finally gets this one therapist that connects with him. 
he like dominates and destroys all these other therapists. He's a really smart young man. He works as a janitor in one of the, one of the most like, um, it'd be like MIT, one of the best colleges because he can learn when everybody goes home. He's reading the books, reading the papers and doing all kinds of stuff. Anyway, he's in the relationship with, with uh, Robin Williams and Robin Williams says to him, he's like, man, you, you need people in your life. You don't have any actual real relationships. You don't have any people that you have connections with because you keep pushing everybody away. Robin Williams understands why he does it, but he doesn't have to tell him he understands. He's just making some clear statements to him as a young man, you need people in your life. And then Matt Damon's response is, I have people in my life. And then, and then uh, uh, Robin Williams says, well, who? And then Matt Damon starts rattling off all of these authors, all these people in these books because he's like, I love books. I love these authors. They speak to me. They minister to me. And then Robin Williams says, yeah, but they're all dead. Like you need real life people that you have to rub up against, that you're challenged to change for. You can read a book and stay exactly the same as you are. The, the, the Bible is a testimony to that. <laughs> you can read a book and not be changed if it's a dead book and if it's dead people. It's a lot more difficult to be in relationship with living, breathing humans, other church members, other men and women of God, and not be changed. The same is true for us, church. We need people. Anybody who says, all I need is Jesus, all I need is God, has not read the Bible. Because Jesus doesn't say that. Don't be mad at me. I'm looking, I can see through your mask. I'm reading eyes all around this place. It's ugly. It's painful. But the results are always something glorious. Always something glorious. As hard as it is, as ugly as it is, most people would rather not enter into it and rather stay a little bit isolated and rather have that, 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 you know, social distancing on a spiritual level. But those who enter in, Paul says, he's been a son to me in the faith. And I can send him. And he's going to care for you just like I care for you. And he's going to bring back me a, a word to me about you that is not tainted or skewed. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be truthful. And he says, he's, he's labored with me in the gospel. I wish I could talk to Timothy before I get to heaven and talk to him, but, but I'm pretty sure Paul was a hard man to be discipled by. <laughs> Can you imagine some of the things that Paul has said? Being discipled by him. Just choose wisely. Be discipled, but choose wisely. You don't have to be discipled by Paul. Barnabas in the Bible is a good one. His name means uh, encourager. Be discipled by somebody like that. But be discipled. All right, so listen to some of the words, and we're going to move on. But some of the words Jesus says about discipleship. If you don't believe me, you don't believe Paul, right? Let's listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You can shift the details, right? We love to hear that. Let's take up our cross and follow God. But what does that mean, like, in your marriage? What does that mean in your finances? What does that mean in your parenting? What does that mean at your job? A disciple has 
sometimes gets very clear words from God. You can't be my disciple if you don't take up your cross and follow me. And he's not talking about taking up an actual wooden cross and walking through the street saying, I love Jesus. He's saying you have to die to yourself in every area of your life. That don't sound like the father a lot of us imagined having. But that's how Jesus disciples. Matthew 23, 1. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Say multitudes. multitudes. Say multitudes. multitudes. Say disciples. disciples. So there's two different groups. Jesus loves everybody. And he'll speak to everybody. And anybody can go out and get a Bible. But he speaks to the multitudes and then he speaks to the disciples. Is the word different that he's sharing? No, the ears are different. The ears are different. I love if you read through the Gospels, it's so clear to see. And he doesn't love any differently, but people receive more or less based on their relationship with him. The 5,000 all got fed, right? But afterwards, it's the 12 who are sitting with him, talking with him about what was actually happening. And you know who ate last? The disciples. Watch out, you can get in trouble. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's no option here. One of the issues that I think we have in the church, definitely in America, definitely in Southern California, is like we just sugarcoat it and we water it down. You'll be all right without discipleship. Jesus says, no, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. You're a multitude. I love you. You might be saved. But you are not my disciple and don't say that. Because you won't die to yourself. Paul says, I die to myself every day. Why do we have to sugarcoat it? Isn't it better? I mean, we're all different, we're all different personalities, but isn't it better just to hear from day one, like, Jesus loves you, get saved. I know I'm a sinner, you get saved. Okay, let me tell you the truth. You got to give up everything. But I'll walk with you. I'll help you. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done, but it's what Jesus wants. It's going to be amazing in your future. No, what we say is, what can Jesus do for you? We're so glad that you came. We're so glad that, that you want Jesus. You know, what do you really want him to do for you? There's nothing required of you. And we wonder why we don't get the results we want in our own lives and in the lives of our loved ones. We got kids under 18 living in our house and we don't make them go to church. They should want to go to church, but if they don't want to go to church, they should have to go to church. Amen. We want to be our kids' friends. We want God to be our friend. And it's like, gosh, dang it. <laughs> That's why we're all jacked up. Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like Jesus is so clear. And they're not contrary. You could share 20 scriptures right now about the unbelievable love of God. How Jesus is just so merciful and so graceful. And it's not two different people. He's the same person. He's going to love you more than anybody has ever loved you. But he is also going to require everything of you. You can't have half of him. You get the whole thing. We have to change. He's not going to change. I've seen about like my relationship with, with my wife. There are certain times throughout the course of our lives where, 
And I think all of us have been there where we say, you know who you married, <laughs> right? Like, you know who I am. You get the best side of me and you get the worst side of me. I was just thinking right now, but that's not right. Yes, that's true. However, I have a responsibility to change. The worst side of me needs to get better. And the best side of me needs to get better as well. With Jesus, it ain't like that. He ain't going to change. He's already perfect. What you think is the worst side of him or the difficult side of him or the challenging side of him is still the good side of him. We have to change. I'm almost done with this section. I can't help it. This is Luke chapter 5. Let's talk discipleship. Verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and they were washing their nets. So there's two empty boats. The fishermen are kind of close by, but they're washing their nets, right? It says, verse 3, then he got into one of the boats like it was his. <laughs> I, when you read, do you like see the picture? That'd be like two cars being parked out there and somebody just walking up and jumping into one of them. Like, that's how shocked you should be when you read this. He got into one of the boats, and it belonged to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. So not only are you going to steal the car, but you're going to ask him to chauffeur you. He said, Simon, put out from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Oh, he stole Peter's boat, or Simon's boat, got into it. Then he said, Simon, I need your help. Push out so that people can hear me. So Simon's sitting there listening to Jesus preach to all these people. Jesus preaches to all the people. He says, hey, Simon, we're not going back yet. Let's go out into the deep. Man, if we understood discipleship. Verse 4, or verse 5. Or no, let's go back to verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, We've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. We know better. We've already done this. You can't help me. You're not a fisherman. Who are you to tell me what to do? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Look at his response. He's doing something he'd already done. Instead of doing it his way, he's doing it Jesus' way. He's getting more blessed than he's ever been before. He calls his friends and says, You guys are going to be blessed too. They're sinking with all this stuff, but his response is not, how can I get more rich? Jesus, you gave me all this fish. I'm a fisherman. We're going to go sell this. Our family's going to be blessed. Tell us what to do so we can go get more fish. He says, no, I'm a sinner. Depart from me. Because he recognizes this is God. This isn't just some man. This is God. And money doesn't matter anymore. Fish doesn't matter anymore. My boat doesn't matter anymore. You're too holy to be with me. I'm a sinful man. We got to get back to the shore and you got to get out of here. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Look at this, guys. 
When you read through the gospel, who are the three that were always the closest to Jesus? All the transfiguration, always went with him to pray, everything like that? Peter, James, and John. Why? Was it because they saw miracles? Was it because he blessed their business? Was it because they had financial stability? I'll tell you why. Discipleship. Look. Who was with them? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Here it is. Verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Isn't that what he said? I'm going to go back a verse. Luke 14, 33. Jesus says, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. This is why they became disciples. This is why they were blessed. This is why their lives were transformed. This is why our lives are transformed by them. Not because of anything else other than discipleship. They forsook everything. The very thing that they wanted and they fished for all night, they now had it. And what does Paul later say? He says, everything I've gained, I count as loss. And isn't that what you see here? We got everything we wanted, but we don't want anything but you now, Jesus. Where are we going? I want to be your disciple. I will forsake all to follow you. Matthew 21, 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. You want to be a disciple? Be commanded. I know it's hard. These statements, I know I'm taking little chunks, but just listen. What was it about the disciples? They forsook all. What did they do? They did what Jesus commanded them to do. They're humans. It's hard. They disagreed a lot. But this is what made the disciples. Last one, Matthew 28, 19. At the end, when Jesus is going to go back to heaven, he says to these disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, deserve, to observe all that I've taught you. Listen to that command. When, you, when you're asked, what does it mean to, what church do you go to? That's what people say. What church do you go to? How big is your church? Has anybody ever asked you, how's the discipleship at your church? How's your discipleship going? Are you discipling anybody? Why are we asking things that Jesus is not asking us to do? Why are we so concerned with everything else? Are you comfortable? How's the temperature? Is the AC too loud? Are the bathrooms clean? Are you a church on, or excuse me, a mask on, mask off church? And we wonder why we're not having revival and the spiritual blessings and generations of faithfulness. The one thing Jesus told him to do is the last thing we want to do. We should be ashamed if we talk to people and we can't tell them that we've been discipled or are being discipled. We should be ashamed if we talk to people and we can't tell them, I am actively discipling somebody. If you have kids, you have automatic disciples. You don't have to go get one. They're free, <laughs> kind of. So last thing I'm going to say is, if you haven't taken the discipleship course here, I challenge you to take it and like really take it. Don't just do it and read through it. Like go through the course. Ask yourself, is this true? Is this real? Is it something that God might have for me? Like take your time, be patient. 
you know, most of our leaders have gone through all of our courses in order, and that was our design, that was our goal, and now what we've said is we open them up all to everybody, whichever way you want. You don't want to start with salvation, you can start with discipleship. You can start with any of them, just grow. Discipleship is rich, it's fulfilling. I'll say this last thing, we've spent more time trying to tell people about discipleship and to get them to pursue discipleship than actually discipling. I hope that's different in 2021. All right, I'm going to move on. But first, a quote from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote this book called Cost of Discipleship. And listen to what he says. Highlight your stuff, guys, when you read so you don't have to reread the whole thing. He says, how are we to reconcile the obscurity of the cross of Christ with the light that shines? Ought not the Christian life to be as obscure as the cross itself? Is not the light exactly what they ought to avoid? It is a wicked sophistry to justify the worldliness of the church by the cross of Jesus. Is it not plain to the simplest here that the cross is the very place where something extraordinary has been made visible? Or is the cross no more than an example of justice? Does it stand for nothing more than worldliness? Did not the cross become extraordinarily visible among all the darkness to the terrified spectators? Are the rejection of the suffering and the suffering of Christ, his death before the gates of the city on the hill of shame, not visible enough? Are they what is meant by invisibility? And in this part for the disciples, it is in this light that the good works of the disciples are meant to be seen. Men are not to see the disciples, but their good works, says Jesus. And these works are none other than those which the Lord Jesus himself has created in them by calling them to be the light of the world under the shadow of his cross. Saying the cross changes everything. It shines a visible light in the world of who God is and what he came to do. And he says that that's the call of every disciple. You are the light of the world. If people cannot see the fullness of the cross by your life and your good works, do not call yourself a disciple. This, again, is a tough book. There's probably somebody that writes nicer than Bonhoeffer, but Bonhoeffer also was part of a plot to try to kill Hitler and died in an internment camp. So he ain't really playing around with the things of God either. Number one, discipleship. Number two, dependency. Good news, like I said, there's only two points. You're on the last one. Dependency. Philippians chapter 2, we went through verse 24, we're at verse 25. He just finished talking about um, Timothy, right, and sending him, and now he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Man, Epaphroditus. I wish they said more about him. Some good parallels here about, 
Uh, he says he didn't even regard his own life. And is that what he said about Timothy? I don't have anybody like mine like, uh, other than this guy who will not do what he wants to do, but what Christ wants him to do. We see some of the similarities there. Who is this Epaphroditus? He's sick to the point of, of almost dying. Paul says, listen, I'm so glad that God healed him because not only for his sake and your sake, but for my sake, I'm already in prison. I'm already struggling. I'm already sad. And if this brother who has helped me and loves me and loves you, if he died, that would be sorrow on sorrow. Look at the way they talk about each other. <laughs> the love they have for each other. So who is this Epaphroditus? He's a member of the church in Philippi. He's part of that community, right? He's sent to Paul to deliver a financial gift to him from the church. Paul is in need. Paul needs help. Paul needs support. And the church in Philippi says, yes, we're going to do that. So they send Epaphroditus to deliver this gift that they've gathered together. Romans chapter 15, verse 27, it says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. You've heard that scripture before here. The point is this. If you're receiving spiritually, you give materially. And they were pleased to do so. So it's like this church in Philippi that like we wouldn't have the gospel if Paul didn't show up here. If he didn't minister to Lydia and the jailer and he didn't keep writing letters and keep visiting us, we wouldn't know who God was or what to do. We got no problem sending this brother a care package when he's in prison. Epaphroditus, take this and send it to him. I think, obviously it's true, inside here, this idea of you receive spiritually, you give materially, but I think there's also this idea of true love and value for a minister or for a ministry that people will want to care for that person and want to care for that ministry. Does that make sense? It's one thing to say like, oh, that was awesome and I really received and I feel like I should do something in response. Here you go. It's another thing to say, you know what? I love that person. <laughs> I love that church and I just want to bless it. I want to be a part of doing something there in that place. There's a shift, I think, that really should happen. Less about debt that's owed and more about love and appreciation. I think all of us, when we start our relationship with Jesus, it starts in that debt and, and owing kind of thing, right? When you see the light, like, like Bonhoeffer was talking about, the light of the cross, and you realize, oh my God, I was that kind of sinner. Oh Jesus, you came for me. I've been listening to a song lately, I think it's called Beautiful by Maverick City Music. And it, it's, it says that, uh, just one look. It says when he was on the cross, it's just one look that changed my life. I don't know, it's been a while since I've told you this, but when you picture the cross, this is, this is what I do. I picture Jesus on the cross and his eyes are looking at me. Like when he's crying, when he's crying out to the Father. It ain't for everybody, which it is. It's for me. It's not like a community salvation. He's like, oh God, forgive Vaughn for he knows not what he does. Just one look, right? So when we get saved, that's overwhelming. And you're like, I owe you everything, Lord. If you did that for me, you could have my whole life, all that kind of stuff. But then eventually it's not debt and guilt anymore. I got to go to church. I owe it to him. I got to give my tithe. I owe it to him. I got to read my Bible. He said I need to. I got to pray because he said that we should pray without ceasing. That's debt and you owe somebody. It's real. And if that's what it takes, go ahead and do that. That's the beginning of our salvation. But at some point we should shift to, I love you. 
I don't owe you. I love you. I want to read. I want to pray. I want to talk to you. I want to worship. I want to be made to look like a fool because I'm in the front with my hands up singing off tune. Why? Because I'm in love with you and I don't care. I think that's what happens in Paul's relationship. When you read through some of these things, it's not just a guilt and a debt. They want to take care of him. Let's send Epaphroditus. It's like, no, man, that's Paul. Let's go take care of him. We love him. And Paul's saying, this brother got sick coming to take care of me. God, don't let him die. I love him. I'd rather have a church of a hundred that love each other than a thousand that don't know each other Amen. and could care less when somebody gets sick. Amen. Care less when somebody's hungry, hurting, dying. So Epaphroditus brings this gift to Paul, but listen to how Paul describes him. Verse 25, Epaphroditus is my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger. What was Timothy? A son and a disciple, right? And what is Epaphroditus? A brother, a fellow worker, and a soldier. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4.15. Though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. This is Paul. He ain't playing around again. He says, you can have all kinds of instructors, all kinds of teachers. You can listen to the best podcasts. You can go to the evangelism uh, events at Angel Stadium, but that ain't your father. So good. In this life, we need a lot of different types of relationships. Somebody say amen. amen. In the kingdom, we need a lot. We need evangelists. We need conferences. Amen. We need Hillsong. Amen. But Hillsong don't care about you. This worship team cares about you. Amen. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Amen. They care about their congregation, and then they pump it out just like we're starting to live stream. Like, that's cool and everything, but God didn't say, like, my desire is that you would find somebody that's completely disconnected from you and pretend like you're connected. No, he's like, I want you to be house to house in a community loving one another. Paul says, look, I'm glad you have 10,000 teachers, but you got one father. I had a pastor that discipled me. We had an Elijah, Elisha passing of the mantle kind of moment where they planted us and ministered to us in a different way. I still have those that speak with authority into my life who can tell me to do something or not do something in a spiritual father type role for me personally. Amen. I have teachers and professors, actual college teachers and professors that teach me a lot of stuff. I have brothers and sisters that I labor with in the kingdom. And I have people that I lead. It's healthy to have a fullness of relationships. This is what God desires for us. Like, it's not go to church and listen to somebody share some things with you. It's actual relationships with different roles, different meetings, different effects upon us that God wants us all to have. People matter. Roles matter. Community matters. Diversity, it matters. We all need teachers and friends and congregations, but there's something interesting about the two that we're talking about today in Philippians. Spiritual fathers and mothers, disciplers, right? And a discipleship relationship. And then Paul with Epaphroditus, spiritual brothers and sisters that are fellow soldiers. There's a million different kinds. I shared some that I have in my life. You hopefully have many of these types in your life. But today it's about disciples and disciplers 
And it's about brothers and sisters that are not just brothers and sisters, they're fellow soldiers. That's what Paul says. It's my brother, and he's a fellow soldier. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. This is Jesus sitting down, teaching, and it says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, Jesus, your mother, your brothers, they're outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those that, who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's this different kind of understanding. Praise God for your real mother and brothers and sisters. I love in this church, we have families that have very, very strong um, relationships and connections and commitments to one another. We also have broken families that they don't even talk to their brothers and sisters or their parents. That's just the reality, I think, in any group of people. There's things to celebrate there and there's things to pray about there. However, I think Jesus is making it clear here that your perspective as a Christian should change all those things. Jesus himself, if anybody ever loved a mother, Jesus loved his mother. If anybody ever loved their siblings, Jesus loved his siblings. And what does he say? Look, those who do the will of my Father in heaven are my mother, my brother, and my sister. It's unique. We need fathers and mothers in the faith, in discipleship relationships, and we need brothers and sisters that we're working together with as fellow soldiers. When a soldier comes home on leave, they can't wait to see their family, right? Mom and dad is excited, their brothers and sisters are excited, and then their friends, right? A soldier comes home, they go back to the people that they went to high school with. I remember I wasn't a soldier, but I come home from college, I couldn't wait to see all my friends. Mom and dad, I love them and everything, but it was like, hi guys, and then I'm out with my friends, right? However, a soldier has built relationships with their commanding officer and their fellow soldiers that have changed the way they look at life. A lot of soldiers have a hard time being around civilians because they say we're selfish, we're lazy, we don't understand how much our freedom costs, they don't understand that right now, they don't even like being home a lot of times. Marriages get destroyed because soldiers are like, how can I be here when my brothers and sisters are out there on the battlefield dying? Why don't we feel like that as Christians? Could it be because it's just a game to us, a building to go into, some morality that we can try to pursue, and we don't actually see it as God tells us? Jesus says, these are my brothers and my sisters. This is my mother and my father. We're doing the will of God and we are fighting together. And if my blood mother, brothers and sisters have to stay outside while we do this battle thing, well, then that's just how it's going to be. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I don't have time to go any further into this, guys, but I'll say this quickly. There's nothing like knowing that someone is truly fighting with you and alongside you. In the kingdom, I'm talking specifically, when you have that opportunity every now and then to be like, oh man, this brother is really with me. Like, he's fighting with me, he's fighting alongside me, he's fighting for me. Sisters, same thing. I have sisters in the faith, but, but, but particularly woman to woman, when you look up and you're like, oh man, this woman is actually with me. Yeah. 
There's nothing like it. And you know what else? There's nothing, nothing worse than realizing somebody you thought was fighting with you is not. It's so demoralizing. The, the feeling of abandonment, the feeling of like, I could barely carry the load that I was carrying, and now I got to carry both loads? I'm not going to make it. This is the level of, of intimacy and community and unity that Paul is talking about, that he's trying to get the church in Philippi to, to understand, and that we have to understand. Picture Jesus, and he's, he's trying to explain this difference between regular relationships and soldiers and, and what his father's will is. Mary does not want to see her son crucified, right? Peter, when Jesus says he's going to be crucified, Peter says, no way, I'm not going to let it happen. And Jesus is like, get thee behind me, Satan, to his disciple. Sinner, follower of Satan, you're not concerned with what God is concerned with. You're concerned with what you're concerned with. What's better for you? What's going to make you more comfortable? What Jesus needs is another soldier saying, I don't care what it costs you. I don't care what it costs me. I'm with you. You see why, like, his, his mother, like, if you look at your mom, that might have kept Jesus from going to the cross because of that love. It's not a bad thing that she really loves him, but he doesn't need somebody that just loves him into what's comfortable for him or easy for him. He needs somebody that loves him to the cross. I don't need somebody to, to love me in a way that's like, oh, you're so good and you've done enough and why don't you rest? And why don't you relax? I need somebody that says, hey, look, there's more people to get saved, bro. There's more work to be done. Stop being an idiot with your wife and love her so that you can be a good example, that she can have a full life and that other couples can look and say there's hope and help and we can be changed. I need soldiers. I need fighters. You need soldiers. You need fighters. We can find enough pats on the back. I got to stop. Even cutting off a third, I still didn't finish. I'll give you some homework. Read Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is going to talk to you guys about um, Achilla and Priscilla. It's going to talk to you about Apollos. It's going to shed some light on all the things we've talked about with discipleship and uh, other soldiers that we labor with and what Achilla and Priscilla were able to do for Apollos. You're also going to see that Timothy and Silas come and, and Paul gets really, really encouraged by their presence and there's boldness, just all this dynamic that comes through relationship. Maybe at some point we'll have time to, uh, to talk about it, but do your homework. I hope it, uh, I hope it blesses you. I want to pray. Why don't we stand? <clears throat> it's heavy, but, but I just believe that, that uh, you know, God will, God will work it out. Um, count the cost, you know, We've been talking about this for years, but I don't want anybody to rush into discipleship. Ask questions, read, get into the course, um, but count the cost. Jesus says you don't want to go into battle and find out you don't have enough resources. <laughs> you can't win the battle. Count the cost, but enter in, take the risk. At the end of that story, this is the last scripture I'll share with you. Read Acts chapter 18, please. But uh, the characters I told you about, Achilla, Priscilla, Silas, Timothy, Paul, Apollos, 
In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, later on, this is what Paul says. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Look at the results of these dynamic relationships. Apollos would not have been who he was if it wasn't for brothers and sisters who were soldiering. It said that they taught him. He already knew a lot about God, but they taught him more specifically really about God. Achille and Priscilla became brothers and sisters of Apollos and helped him grow. Paul leads Achille and Priscilla and they become brothers and sisters. They're tent makers together. All these relationships are so dynamic and at some point, God is using all these people so amazingly that Paul says, I'm the one that planted that church, but it's actually Apollos who watered it. Like, what happened there would not have happened without him. It's not all about Paul. And then he says, God's just using us. He chooses to use men and women, but it's God who causes the actual increase. We need each other, guys. We need each other on a more deep level than I think most of us really understand. We don't have to be perfect. It's okay to be broken, but it's not okay to uh, be who we used to be. Don't be fatherless when you have a perfect father. Be sons, be daughters, rejoice in that. Rejoice in love and covering. And rejoice in the difficulty. James says, count it all joy when you fall in these various trials. Like, it's okay if it's hard, guys. It's okay. Bow your heads with me, Lord. We thank you for discipleship. We thank you that it's your plan. We also thank you that it's not easy, Lord. It's actually confirmation to us that it's of you, that it's not a surface thing that we're going through, how to talk better, how to look like Christians. No, actually what you're doing is changing us from the inside out. You're changing our hearts, you're changing our minds. That should be the most difficult thing we ever experience here. And we're thank you, thankful that it actually is, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that uh, those of us who enter into it can help others to enter into it, Lord. We thank you that you give us a supernatural power to be able to be successful, to be able to be forgiving, to be merciful towards one another, to understand your word. We do want to be changed, Lord. We want to be saved, but we also want to be transformed, Lord. We want to be that light of the world, showing who you really are and what you really did on that cross by the fruit of our lives, Lord. Save us. Change us, Lord. Help us. With heads bowed, eyes closed, if you're not saved and you want to be, would you raise your hand? Salvation is what matters most. There is no discipleship. There is nothing else. Amen. I see you, sis. God bless you. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You've made such a wonderful decision. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment here. Is there anybody else that would join our sister and just say, look, I know he's real. I need him. I know I'm a sinner. I want to be saved. It's a decision. Read through your scriptures. The, the, the heavens don't open and lightning doesn't strike. People hear the good news and they respond to it. Anybody else this morning just want to respond to the good news, not saved, but want to be? We don't do this often, but does anybody else just want to rededicate your life? You know that you, you're already saved, but you feel like you just kind of need to make a decision to just say, Lord, I just want to give myself back to you. Not out of obligation, but out of love like we talked about. Amen. I see you, brother. Anybody else just want to rededicate your life to Jesus this morning? I see you, sis. God bless you. God bless you. Isn't it so good that we have a chance to do that? 
He's so good. He's so loving that we get to do that. I'm going to pray for them and then we'll move on. Lord, I thank you for our sister that gave her life to you this morning, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing. Seeing her here in this place, we know for sure that someone else had planted that seed in her heart, Lord. We thank you that maybe in some way we were able to water that seed this morning through worship and through the proclamation of your word, Lord. And we thank you that none of us can receive the glory because you are the one that has caused the increase, Lord. When she was in darkness, Lord God, when she was headed to hell, Lord, you came in and said, you are my daughter, I love you. Come into the light and you are going to be brought into heaven, Lord. I thank you that we get to witness that. Your word says that you are gonna send your Holy Spirit to live inside of her heart that she would have confirmation. When it gets hard, when she has doubts, when she feels weak, Lord, she will not be able to say that she was duped, that she was convinced by man. She'll know that you live inside of her, Lord, and she will endure. She will make it, Lord. I thank you for the work that you're doing in her and uh, in our midst this morning, Lord God. I thank you for our other brother, our other sister that would dedicate their lives, rededicate their lives to you. But Lord, you're so good. We can start over at any time. We can shift at any time. These things that were impossible for us in the world, they are possible with you, God. I believe with all my heart, Lord, that they are sincere, that this, this day is going to be a shifting for their future, for their perspective, Lord God, for the destiny that you have for them, Lord. Just coming one step closer, Lord. Help them and support them, Jesus. Make us more aware of what you're doing that we can be a help and support, Lord. Last call, and then I'm going to open the altars. We're going to have worship and communion. Is for those that want to be discipled, want to know more about discipleship, and those who want to become more dependent upon the people of God. Discipleship is God's desire. There are the multitude, and you can be there. It's okay. It's not advised, but it's okay. I believe that you're saved. But Jesus says he spoke to the multitude and he spoke to the disciples. It's there for you. If you want it, he will speak to you in a different way, in a unique way, in a special way. It'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. And then for dependency, if you want to actually um, stress yourself, put yourself in a position of risk. God says you can be dependent. I want you to be dependent upon others. Disciples, brothers and sisters, co-soldiers, co-laborers, friends, pastors, teachers, like all these relationships, God wants you to be dependent on. He doesn't want you to be alone. He doesn't want you to be isolated. He doesn't want you to just do what you can do for yourself. If you need prayer in that area, because it's not just going to happen. If you need prayer in that area, either of those two areas, when you come to the altar, would you just let somebody know? We want to pray for the salvations, the rededications, those who want discipleship or want to know more about discipleship, and those who want to become more dependent. Just embrace people, embrace relationships. The altars are open. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your people. We thank you that we got to worship you, Lord. We thank you for this time of communion where we get to remember what you did for us to make all of this possible, that you are still alive and well, preparing a place for us, that your spirit is alive and active and moving, saving people in our very midst this morning, Lord God. We want to be like Peter and James and John. When they saw you move, Lord God, they weren't concerned with how their life could be better. They said they forsook everything. They acted right there in the moment moment, Lord God, and they followed you. Would you help us to act in this moment? We've seen something. We're a witness to something. We're taking part in something. Would we act? Would we come to the altar? Would we declare it? Would we ask for prayer, Lord God, trusting that you'll continue to move, Lord? 
We love you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The altars are open. Communion will go around to you. Pray for your brothers. Pray for your sisters. Again, come to the altar if that's God. Ask